Uh, indeed, please do pull out your Bibles. They're in front of you. Um, they haven't been for a long time, but they are now. Uh, we're um, looking at Judges uh, chapter 3 on page 191 in those Bibles. I'll wait a second for you to find them. As I do, just to remind you uh, where we were, where we, what we heard last week, uh, when God said, um, you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, uh, but you shall break down their altars. And then we run down to chapter 3, verse 5, and we start there. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands <coughs> of Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram Naharim to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who served them, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went out to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. And so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Keres, died. Kenes died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Uh, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite. The Israelites um, sent him with tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothes. He presented the uh, tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. He <coughs> was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, uh, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. <coughs> the king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for
for you. As the king rose up from his seat, Ehud reached out with his left hand, drew the sword uh, from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. (coughs) Then Ehud went out to the porch. Uh, He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the door of the upper room locked. They said, oh, he must be relieving himself um, in, in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And then they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed the stone images and escaped to Syria. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him to the hills. Sorry, went down from the hills with him. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him and took possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. Well, that's a bit gruesome, wasn't it? (laughs) It's uh, very vivid pictures in your Bibles about real stories, real war situations and difficulties. You know, uh, last week when Matt started, uh, he gave us an overview of Judges 1 and 2. And the author showed the constant failure of the people of God, Israel, who should have been in covenant relationship with God, but they kept failing. And uh, and there was a cycle pattern of the decline. I think we've got a a chart up there. And... um, where the people start to, be, uh, to do evil, God then gets angry and punishes them. Then uh, they are under the power of a foreign ruler for a period of time. Then they finally say, God, please save us, help us. God hears their cry. He then sends a deliverer. And we're going to look at two of those today. And then the deliverer saves the people. Then there's peace for a period of time. And then that person dies. And after that, what happens? Cycle continues. The people did evil again before the Lord, he sent him into judgment and so on. That was last week. And, um, and as we saw from verse 5, Israelites also had to, uh, were told by God to cleanse the land of the foreign uh, nations because seriously concerned about the gods of the foreign nations because if you leave them here with all their gods and all their, their belief systems, you'll be tempted into sin and disobedience. But we get to uh, chapter 3, verse 5, and this is the state. This is where we begin. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They're different uh, people groups within that area who lived in that land. In other words, they didn't cleanse the land of these people. 
So now they have to live amongst them with all their false beliefs, with all their uh, sacrifices, with all their temple prostitution, with all their other sins, right? So now, rather than being amongst the people of God, you're in the middle of all these other nations. And they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So they live amongst the nations, firstly. Temptations everywhere, false gods everywhere, just like living in, in Australia today. But secondly, they intermarried with the pagans. And the Bible was very clear to the people of God. Uh, take Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's worthwhile me saying a few things right here on this. Why not intermarry? Says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Remembering in this period of time, normally the parents arrange the weddings. And so, well, I've got a son, you've got a daughter. Yes, I'll give her or I'll receive her. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So the Bible's principle is that if you were part of the people of God, you'd have marry someone else who is part of the people of God. That's a no-brainer. You don't have someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, then go and marry someone who is a follower of Allah and follows the teaching of Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't then go and marry an atheist or an agnostic or someone who doesn't know if there is a God. That principle in the Old Testament continues in the New Testament. And uh, the Jewish people, again, they would follow that similar pattern. And for example, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, talking about singleness and marriage, uh, about a woman whose uh, partner has died. He said, if a woman is bound to her husband, as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But notice what he says, but he must belong to the Lord. That's a general principle, right? Uh, you marry someone else who loves Jesus. Why would uh, the Bible say that? Why would the Old Testament affirm that? Why would the New Testament confirm that? Well, you see, if you marry an unbeliever, you then compromise your faith. You put yourself in danger. Sometimes their, their beliefs will influence you to move away from God, and we've seen that multiple times. Your children will be, if you have children together, they will be conflicted. I was talking to someone the other day, he said, they married a so-called Christian, they weren't authentic Christian. They normally Christian married a Muslim. They said, my children are brought up as Muslims, because that's what happens in the Muslim world. But most importantly for us, if we are Christians, then Jesus is the center of our lives. We've been forgiven, transformed. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We live for God's glory and Him alone. Christ is the center. Christ is enough. To intermarry with someone whose God may be money, may be family, uh, may be nothing or another God, is in, that puts you in conflict with Jesus. So you... Uh, as I said to some other people, you know, one, you're a child of God. The person who's not a Christian is an enemy of God. Uh, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't, ha don't have God's mind after them. You live for the glory of God and the spread of his fame. The other person lives for who knows what they live for. And uh, sometimes, though, uh, you meet someone who's really nice and uh, you think they're really lovely. And uh, there's no other good Christian men or Christian women around. And if only they were Christians. And sometimes we go on what we call missionary dating. You ever try that? Oh, I'm just going to pray and God will save them. And if he doesn't then, then you break their heart because you've been playing games with their heart. Missionary dating. And that's why the Bible says right there back in the Old Testament, confirming the New Testament, guys, if you're going to love me, seek someone, pray for someone who also loves Jesus, build your life together. And these are the third thing. They serve their gods, the Baals, the Asherah gods. They're the fertility gods. The, the gods of the peoples. So then God, uh, we come to the first judge, Othniel, the model judge or the ideal judge. 
We see the people's decline again in terms of that cycle. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. Listen to the language. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against them. They forgot the Lord. They forgot his saving work. They forgot his deliverance from Egypt. They forgot his covenant love. They forgot how he brought them into the promised land. They forgot him. They were so distracted by other things, even though they know him and they believe they were God's people, they, in a sense they forgot him because they didn't put him first. It's a damning expression. It's a heartbreaking expression. When, you know, if you've got a close friend and then you run into them and they sort of forgot you, like you don't exist, you don't matter any longer, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? I said, we used to be friends, you know, take teenage, we're, we were just the best friends and now you don't call, you don't ring, you don't want to see me. It's like they forgot you, you don't matter to them. A few years ago, I was uh, at a uh, teenage conference, and I was a leader there, and I was running a small group with about uh, eight girl, boys and girls in my group. And it was a leadership conference, and uh, I spent a whole week with these people, and then, um, and then um, prayed, encouraged them, asked, answered their questions. And uh, a few weeks later, we were at the uh, Sydney Town Hall, and there was a gathering of a Scripture Union, big celebration. And all the guys at the leadership conference said, hey, let's all catch up at the town hall. So we all turned up at the town hall. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people there. And, uh, and it's so exciting to see everyone. And then uh, two girls came up to me and uh, said, Ange, how are you? I said, oh, nice to see you. And one of the girls I remembered. The other I forgot. She'd been in my group just a few weeks ago. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in my small group. And she looked at me, she's so excited to see me. And I looked at her just at a blank. I mean, you girls always dress differently anyway, right? Your hair's different. And it's a different context. You know, it's like you run into someone, who was that? And I, and I asked the question. I said, who? And I, no, I said to her, and she said, when she realized I didn't know who she was, she turned, put her head down, and walked away. Her name was Alison. I'll never forget her. Alison, if you're watching tonight, I'm sorry. And I said to the other girls, who was that? I said, it was Alison. I said, Alison, in my group all week. Now, we sometimes forget things. But for Israel, you think of that language. God says, they forgot the Lord. The one who should have been center, it should have been the center of their lives, the, the one that they worshiped, they forgot. They pushed him aside and followed other gods. They served the fertility gods of the nations. The Baals are the male gods. Asherah are the female gods. They compromised their faith. And they were what we call syncretists. You know, they wanted the best of both gods, I say. They wanted the best of both gods. They wanted Yahweh, his blessing. They also wanted the other gods. We can be a bit like that. Our hearts can be compromised. We love, sometimes we love money more than Jesus, we love career more than Jesus, we love fame more than Jesus, we love Netflix more than Jesus, we lo may love marriage to a non-Christian more than Jesus, we love sexual pleasure more than Jesus. There's lots of temptation. The Bible says we can only have one master. God says, serve me only. All other good thing, things God gives us, we ought to honour those things for God and for his glory. And we must constantly fight with the help of the Holy Spirit to put God first. Tim Keller, writing from a North American setting, uh, uh, writes this. And in North America, it's really cold sometimes, right? It says, our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. Picture the bucket of water. They'll freeze over 
unless we regularly smash the ice that is forming. It's like that. We sometimes go cold to God and we forget God. We forget all that he's done for us and how special he is. Picture that bucket of water. Keep smashing that ice. Don't let it form. Don't let your heart go cold towards God. I've seen people here, I've been here for a long time. Some of of the passionate people who love Jesus, 18 or 19 or 20, walk away from God. Sorry, let me say even some Christian, people who were Christian husbands, walk away from their marriages and walk away from God in their 40s. Hearts go cold. Don't let the idols distract you. Remember God, look to the cross. If you want to look somewhere, uh, when you're being tempted, look to the cross. As Isaiah, Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. Look at the God who suffered for you. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look to Jesus when your heart's going cold. Read and meditate on his word. Gather in worship. Study and apply God's word in small groups. Serve Christ, and you'll be more focused as you do that. People have failed. They're serving the false gods. Now, God acts to revive his people. That's the second part. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathain, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Firstly, the judgment. And so, therefore, God judges them as a discipline. Listen to this. God judges them so they can wake up to themselves, so their hearts will be soft again, so they will call out to God. So judge, remember, in, I think where were we in 1 Corinthians, we said, God says, um, put them into Satan's realm, put them outside. In other words, put the person who's living immorally out into Satan's realm so they can see the stupidity and come back to God. It's similar here, God judges them. Now, Kushan Rishathaim means, in, in the language, dark, doubly wicked. So he's a terrible oppressor. God brings a terrible oppressor. God can use a terrible oppressor to turn his people back to him. From Aram Naharain, northwest Mesopotamia. So this king's come a long way. God has brought him from a long way to oppress Israel for eight years. And then the normal cycle, the people cry out to the Lord. After eight years, they've had enough. They, when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The punishment... The oppression was God's way of disciplining them and they realized that they needed to come back to God. They cry out to God in their distress. Only God can save them. Only God can deliver them. I don't know if they truly repented, whether they truly turned from idols, but at least they're calling out to God and God hears them. Who does he send? He sends a guy called Othniel. He raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. So God comes upon him to help him. The Lord gave, notice who wins the victory, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel. God is at work, God is overcoming, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So God saves the people through the judge. And we notice about this judge, apart from Joshua, he is the only one man in the judges who doesn't seem to have a flaw. There's nothing wrong with him. He hasn't done anything sinful. He hasn't done anything evil. He seems like the ideal or the model judge here. We know, for example, he did not intermarry with the pagans. In chapter 1, 12 to 13 of Judges, he marries another person, part of the people of God. He took an Israelite wife. The Spirit of God is upon him. And in the Old Testament, if you're reading your Bible, you'll notice the Spirit of God uh, that, who lives in you now, 
right? The Spirit of God who lives in you now uh, was not in every believer in the Old Testament. He only came with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. In the Old Testament, what God would do, He would place His Spirit in kings and leaders and prophets at different times for a specific task, and then the Spirit would be removed. And so, but here God gives him the Spirit to fulfill a task. This man is faithful, he's consistent, he's obedient, and the Lord saves the people through him. He's a faithful judge. Forty years of peace. And then it says, and until Othniel died. Until Othniel died. Full stop. Why am I stopping? He dies and everything changes. Cycle of church history is this. Think God raises up leaders and pastors, for example, denominations where churches grow and mature and they're godly. And sometimes a leader um, dies. And all of a sudden a church that was strong and vibrant brings in a new leader. Maybe it's not as faithful to God. And then the, he teaches a different truth. And then the people are led astray from the truth. We're seeing that happening in denominations across the globe where some denominations have Christian leaders who don't believe key teachings of the Bible. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. They don't believe that hell is real as well as heaven. They don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Multiple things. There are leaders in churches and denominations who do not believe the truth. There are religious leaders in some denominations where, where gay leaders, uh, two men are married to one another and they're priests in their church. Or two women are married to one another and they're, and they're uh, ministers in their church. Good things happen. A leader dies. And sometimes a leader fails morally and things take a downward turn. People lose their focus. The church becomes divided. And, uh, and there are factions that develop and revival comes to an end. A good, strong, vibrant church dies. Ultimately, they shut the doors. We're talking about France and doors being shut. People are opening. They're looking at France. They're going to lovely buildings. Hallelujah. They're great. Look at the architecture. But there's no spirit of God. There are no people who are loving Jesus. Othniel seems pretty average and God used him. Uh, Kay Lawson Younger writes a commentary on on, uh, the book of Judges. He says this, For ten years I taught an undergraduate Old Testament class. I did an informal survey when we came to the book of Judges. I could do that survey with you guys. I asked the students who among them had heard of Samson. If I asked you, how many of you have heard of Samson before you come to the book of Judges? Anyone heard of Samson? Raise your hands. Okay. How many of you had heard of Othniel before you came to the book of Judges? Five or six, seven, eight, nine. (laughs) Right? Well, Samson does get four chapters. He marries a Philistine, a pagan woman. He, he drags her and marries her. He sleeps with a prostitute. He has extraordinary power. He knocks down buildings. He gets his own way. He's unfaithful to God. He makes good television, right? They're the stories. Four chapters. But sadly, there are often Christian leaders and believers who are just like Samson. They may be famous, but not for the right things. And all around the world today, there are significant Christian leaders who have failed sexually, morally, uh, who have now had to be sacked from their positions. The heroes come crashing down. I want to suggest to you, maybe you, we need to imitate the Othniels of the world. The ones who are not very famous, but they're faithful. They do their work, they love Jesus, they love people, they serve. And whether you're a pastor or a youth leader or a home group leader, 
be gracious, faithful, obedient, even if no one else outside of your church knows anything about you. Never written a book, never preached at a conference, never become famous, don't have two million uh, followers on Instagram, but you're faithful to God. And sometimes we make fun of people and, uh, and say, oh, you know, they're pretty vanilla. Anyone heard that expression? We say, oh, yeah, no, you know, they're not that exciting, a bit ordinary, never going to change the world. And sometimes we look at Christian leaders this way. But we need to remember that uh, God is more interested in, dare I say, vanilla Christian leaders than the famous ones who draw attention to themselves build up their own empires rather than the glory of Jesus. And on top of that, I really love vanilla. That's my favourite ice cream, famous favourite thick shake. Caramel comes in close second. And then we have Ehud. Now, having dealt with a guy who was pretty straightforward, we have Ehud, the left-handed rescuer. Chloe preached this one, the lefty. Right? Sin and judgment. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave them Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Notice again, the Lord gives him the power. So God is at work again to wake up his people. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years now. Not eight, but now 18 years under this other power. So he took the city of Palms, which is interesting. Do you know what city that is? It's Jericho. So you're seeing your footnote, it says it's the city of Jericho. In Joshua 7, God's obedient people were given victory over Jericho. Now a pagan king takes control over Jericho. That's what happens. If you don't put God first, God turns, turns the story. And there's a cry for help and a new unexpected deliverer. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. Now a left-handed uh, person delivered, delivering them is a somewhat unexpected saviour. Literally, uh, let's see what that means. Why do they mention his left-handedness? A couple of reasons. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say a left-handed man. It says literally, if you translate Hebrew literally, it says a man restricted in his right hand. A man restricted in his right hand became the deliverer. Think, well, that, why does he say that? Some scholars have argued that he had some physical abnormality in his right hand. And therefore, um, you know, he, he maybe was disabled in some way. I don't think that's right at all. It probably, saying a man restricted in his right hand is probably just a way of saying he was left-handed. In Judges 20, verse 16, you know, there are 26,000 swordsmen. There were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. The same expressions used, their right hands restricted. So it seems to be an expression of saying they're left-handed. And um, Lawson Younger writes, only if Ehud has use of his right hand can he be using his left. By using his left, surprise Eglon. Ehud's plot only works if he appears normal to a Moabite's guards. He comes in, right? And now if you're right-handed, when they check you out, if you come in to see the king, what are they checking? Your sword's on your left side, right? So they haven't checked his right. So he looks like he's going to be anything. And so when he has the opportunity uh, to pull out the sword, he surprises him. We'll come to that by pulling it out from the other direction. So from a literary standpoint, Ehud's left-handedness is explicitly noted because he explains how he smuggles his dagger in. 
the palace guards, assuming he is right-handed, would have checked only his left side for weapons. So the Israelites went, uh, sent him with tribute to Eglon. Go give him goods, uh, give him gifts. That's what you do to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the king. But he had made the double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Ready? Left-hander, remember? He pulled it out from the right. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. That's a bit rude, don't you think? He brings a tribute to someone who's called a very fat man because in the story, you've got to see some of the satire and the comical elements as well. Comical elements, you just killed someone. You've got to see the satire and the comical elements because he will be like a fatted calf who will become the offering. He brings an offering, but Eglon himself will be that offering. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon. And they, had no, they brought him back in. What are you doing back here? Oh, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. And he's thinking, well, I wonder what else he's got for me. You know, he's the big guy. He's the fat guy. He eats everyone's food. The Israelites keep giving him things. He has control. 18 years he's had control. He's powerful. And we know that the name Eglon also is derived from a word, Egel, meaning calf or bull, right? He's being the bull prepared for slaughter. This is the story here. And the satire centers on his famed obesity. He has fatted himself from the tribute he's extorted from Israel over the 18 years. And his obesity here symbolizes his greed, but also highlights his defenselessness and vulnerability to attack. He's so large, he can't protect himself. So large that he can't survive. Like a dumb animal, someone says, he is completely unaware of the danger. Greedy to receive the secret message from Ehud, he dismisses his bodyguards. He says to his attendant, no, go away, I don't need you. He has another can come in and it's just quiet conversation. And Ehud approached him while he was getting, you heard the story, sitting alone in the upper room. He pulls out the sword you know, pulls out with his left hand, he puts it into his stomach, let's not go into that, and leaves the sword there, and his body all, you know, excrement everywhere, and it's smelly and, and horrendous story. Satire, that continues with a comical scene, verse 24, 25. His attendants are outside, thinking, oh, that king's taking a long time in the toilet there. What's he doing? Well, he's pretty large, it might take him quite a while. He's been, maybe he brought him some extra food, and who knows? Do we go in? Don't we go in? Can you see that? You open the, no, no, I'm not going in. The king's not out. No, no, you go in. Right? That's the picture. <laughs> they don't know what they should do. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And they saw their Lord fallen to the floor. Victory over the enemy by the Lord. And then in uh, verses 26 right to 30, you're told Ehud gets away. He then now masses uh, the people. They come down, they, they battle, they take possession and uh, they defeat the Moabites. And then they have peace for 80 years. 80 years. That's a long period of time, right? I mean, we'd all be dead. 80 years, that's one of our lifetimes. When you look at that story, Ehud doesn't seem to have the moral character of Othniel. He resorts to a complex process of deception to bring deliverance. We're told that God gives it, given the victory, God is at work, but there's no specific reference to God. It's not like he said, God told me I'm going to do this. You wonder whether God still sets him apart, but there's always questions about his motives, or not his motives, or his methods to accomplish um, 
God's purposes. And when I think of Ehud, I think of the fact that God will use flawed disciples. None of us are perfect. Sometimes we'll do stupid things. Sometimes we'll do devious things. Yet despite our sinfulness, God can still use us to fulfill his purposes. And sometimes when you lead as a youth leader, when you run a Bible study group, when you lead up the front here and sing, sometimes your heart isn't right. Sometimes you've forgotten God, even in what you do. You do it maybe for yourself. Maybe you're distracted, you've had a tough week, you're not really thinking about the glory of Jesus. You're just doing a job. But God can still use you. God can still take you uh, with your failings and my failings. When I try to preach and, and with all my concerns and my failings, God can still take me and bring uh, the fulfillment of his purposes. As we conclude, let me say that uh, the ultimate saviour obviously is Jesus. Whenever you look at the judges, right, that's a saviour, that's a deliverer, that's a deliverer, that's a deliverer. Where's he going to go? He's going to lead us all the way to King David, to the king, and then the ultimate King David, who is Jesus, who comes and dies for us. But I want to take you back to, um, to Psalm 53 that I read from earlier. But I'm going to start from verse 1. Because for us, again, it's a, a different type of leader, an unexpected way of salvation. It is through his own sacrifice and his own death. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He's talking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, we serve the ultimate deliverer who sacrificed his life on the cross for us, suffering God's judgment in our place. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He overcomes sin, overcomes death, overcomes Satan. And I want you to know that this Jesus did it voluntarily. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father, John 10, 18. Jesus says, I love you so much that I choose to lay down my life. It's the father's will as well, but I choose to lay down my life for you. This is the ultimate deliverer. I urge you to come to him for salvation, not by works, but by faith. And the encouragement from this text is, Stop doing evil, stop following the pagans, and don't need to marry with those who are not followers of Jesus. Come to Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you saved your people Israel multiple times when they cried out to you. But more importantly, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. He laid down his life voluntarily. He was afflicted for us, stricken for us, pierced for our transgressions, that we would be reconciled to you. Thank you for your great work of deliverance. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. And we can spend eternity with you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and uh, enable us to obey you, to walk in your ways, to be radically different and to bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.